Hello, I'm David Osman. On behalf of the Independent Research Forum, welcome to this IRF podcast. With me today is Lenka Markinek of Sustainable Market Strategies, an ESG consultancy firm that specialises in bespoke environmental, social and government-related research and investment advice. Our subject for this podcast, ESG investing, pitfalls and potential opportunities. The Independent Research Forum promotes a wide range of high-quality independent research and data providers from around the world, both micro and macro. Some are stock pickers, some sector-specific, some country-specific, many are global, and all are investment-related. ESG investing has become an essential aspect of the services that many financial institutions provide for their clients. Given the growing popularity of ethical investments, environmental, social and government considerations will inevitably become a more important part of portfolio investment decisions in the future. To discuss these trends and more, I'm very pleased that we're joined today by Lenka Martinek, who is a managing partner at Sustainable Market Strategies. Founded in 2018, Sustainable Market Strategies is an independent investment strategy research service that tracks global investments in the ESG and impact investing space. Also known by the firm's initials SMS, SMS publishes forward-looking, independent and actionable investment research. They look at sustainable investing trends, taking a global, top-down and thematic approach and tailor their views to global market conditions. The SMS team has a total of over 50 years of experience in capital markets, finance, economics, policy, academic research, and sustainable investing. Their expert advice is based on a comprehensive knowledge of ESG megatrends and how these trends can be useful to better understand the markets and to make profitable investment calls. Lenka, welcome. Let's begin with a brief introduction to the advisory service that is provided by Sustainable Market Strategies. Thank you very much for the introduction. I don't actually have too much more to say about sustainable market strategies because you, I think you've done a really excellent job of describing what we do. Uh, essentially, we have the model where we put out weekly research pieces, about 1,500 words uh, total, so fairly short pieces, basically about sustainable themes, starting from the top down. So we're looking for ideas that will play out in capital markets, and we're essentially looking for the companies that will be winners and losers from those themes. So our main sort of bread and butter is really researching sustainability themes. And then, as I mentioned, those companies that will benefit or get or be left behind from those themes. One thing that I wanted to just mention as well, before we get into the the meat, uh, if I can call it that, of the podcast today, is that Sustainable Market Strategies also has a sister business called Nordisk Capital, and essentially a uh, little asset manager that was created two years ago with the idea that if uh, that we've got all this you know research that we've been sitting on over the last five years, and a lot of the sustainability themes that we've been covering really are playing themselves out in markets today, and so Nordisk. Capital is a, is a project that we have that essentially puts money to work based on the research calls of sustainable market strategies. So um, I'm very happy that uh, we can actually see our research in action through markets. Now, following Russia's abominable attack on Ukraine, there's been a marked change in global geopolitical thinking. How has this influenced ESG investment decisions? For instance, 
should defense companies like the multinational arms security and aerospace company BAE Systems now be considered to be ESG compliant because it provides an essential part of the necessary defense of Western democratic values? I'm going to apologize right up front that my answer here is going to be quite long because there's an awful lot to unpack. The defense sector is an area that even for ESG investors has been or sustainability investors is something that is extremely tricky because of sort of the gray sort of I would call it moral ground that we have to think about here. So you're absolutely right to say that there has been a market change in geopolitical thinking in the last year. And this is really what has been driving, you know, companies to sort of change their investment policy policies towards military companies or military associated companies. The biggest proof, I think, of this sort of change in thinking is obviously military budgets around the world. So just as an example, Central and Western Europe in 2022, these two regions, their budgets or their spending, I should say, on military has crossed in real terms. So adjusted for inflation has crossed levels of spending that that occurred in 1989. So why do I mention 1989? Obviously, uh, that's the sort of the commonly known end of the of the Cold War. So I think it sort of is really striking and notable in terms of the type the environment that we're in today. So that's sort of in terms of the context, why I think, I mean, it's pretty obvious that the Ukraine-Russia situation is really what has has driven a, a change of thinking. Just maybe for the historical perspective, defense stocks have always been labeled as, have been labeled sin stocks, along with things like tobacco, coal, gambling, and alcohol. And even today, actually, controversial weapons are the most excluded activity within 70% of European funds. So that, I mean, prior to last year, that reasoning was fairly flawless, I would say, if albeit quite simplistic. The thinking was that defense companies make uh, products that kill people and are often sold to bad actors. So pretty justifiable to exclude them from portfolios. What has changed in the course of the last year in terms of the thinking? The mindset is really that, you know, supporting the Ukrainian side of the war really amounts to uh, defensive operations. So sending military equipment to support resistance. And when you think of it sort of through a human rights kind of perspective, it's hard to disagree that defending oneself and wanting and desiring to preserve sovereignty goes against any particular ESG principle. So I would say that this is quite different than an area like tobacco or gambling, where it's fairly difficult to see sort of any sort of wider social good to the latter two activities. Whereas, you know, you can make this argument that there's a social benefit to having a well-equipped military that can act as a, a deterrence to threats. So that's, I think, the sort of the reason why there's been this sort of change of stance, this argument that you can certainly look to certain uh, treaties and say that, you know, defense is an important aspect of something that is actually is a social good, if you will. As an investor, though, that kind of leads you in a, in a funny place because it's the same weapons that can be considered defensive weapons that are also used for offensive measures as well. So it's very, very, very difficult to distinguish between these two activities. It's hard to you know, support parts of a company and, and not of other parts of the company, essentially, is what I'm saying. So what we have done to answer this question for clients of sustainable market strategies is come up with a sort of fairly simple framework or methodology to evaluate companies within the defense 
defense-based. And what we have done where we have sort of drawn the line is to say, okay, there are certain weapons that we can consider to be, or manufacturers of certain weapons, controversial weapons, that should not be considered in a portfolio. And this really comes down to violation of human rights. You can get the list of which munitions are basically on conventions of human rights treaties that essentially tell you which ones are, you know, evil for lack of a better word. So things like landmines, cluster munitions, et cetera, et cetera, are things that we can uh, find on international treaties that would suggest that the companies that are producing these, it's a fairly big red flag. So within the defense sector, already we can put some context. We can say, okay, certain types of companies are sort of the worst of the worst or areas that we wouldn't want to touch. The second point, and I think this is equally valid, is that when we look at defense companies, there is a basket that are notoriously have poor governance. So again, if we think about ESNG, defense companies, that it would fall mostly in the social and the governance perspective. So from a governance angle, what we know is that many, many of the large defense contractors or companies have very tight relationships with government. And this is showing up in fairly poor governance scores. So the same companies, essentially, uh, the top, the largest five companies in the US are also the biggest lobbyists and account for 60% of the total lobbying money that's spent of over 200 companies. So again, there's basically five companies that are doing most of the lobbying in the US. And those are the same companies that are getting the contracts. So you can see how this really opens itself to a governance problem. This is another group of companies that I would say that for and from a methodology or a framework perspective, defense companies with poor governance and controversial weapons are companies that you would probably want to avoid as an ESG or a sustainability investor. There's another group of companies that we found, we call them sort of the secondary group of defense companies. And these are companies that are gaining their revenues from both the government contracts, but also from the rest of the private sector. So we find that these companies tend to be much more transparent. They have better governance and are not involved in these controversial weapons. So a few of those companies, Rolls-Royce, Rheinmetall, SAB, all of these companies incidentally have actually performed much better than what we would call the defense primes. So the traditional defense companies that, that I mentioned earlier. So again, maybe just as a quick conclusion on this question, the two things that I think need to be kept in mind is that we can find a framework that works for ESG when it comes to defense, looking at by excluding controversial weapons and those companies that have high governance scores because the connections with government will be a little bit more sound. If I'm right, there's also criteria that you can apply that's more positive in terms of the aspects of defense, which are more acceptable in terms of the benefits that they bring. And I'm thinking of things like where they're helping with cybersecurity, other security matters. Could you say a bit more about that? Sure. So when I mentioned this secondary basket of companies that exclude the defense primes, some of those cybersecurity companies, for example, would also fall in that category. From the environmental perspective, If the world is going to reach its renewable energy targets for 2030 and 2050, there will have to be a massive increase in solar power capacity. Currently, China is the leader in solar power, but recent geopolitical considerations are encouraging a trend towards deglobalization, with the West wanting to have less dependence on China, particularly given the Chinese government's threat to invade Taiwan, China's abusive human rights record, and other political factors. Where does this leave the ESG investor? 
So actually, I'm going to just restate your question so that it is very, very clear to listeners, because I think this is a very big problem for investors, not not just for ESG investors, but something that we that all investors really need to understand. So among other things, many Western nations currently have two very important objectives. One is to decarbonize their economies. And the sort of consensus is that we are going to decarbonize by increasing investments into renewable energy. Okay, so that's objective number one, decarbonization through renewable energy. And then the second objective is to reduce the dependence on China. And as you rightly stated in your introduction there, um, there's a whole host of reasons for that. We don't need to get into them today, but suffice to say, there's this objective of reducing our dependence on China, basically getting our supply chain to be delinked from Chinese companies and the government. So what is the problem then? The problem for all investors, and as I mentioned, this is ESG investors, but really for everyone, the problem is that China currently dominates almost all of the key supply chains in the renewable energy manufacturing space. So as an investor, you see opportunities in renewable energy and you get very excited because you know that you know this path to net zero requires an, a massive increase in capital to renewable energy. But then you realize that almost all the companies that you're looking at have some tie back to China and that any company that you're looking at is, is probably going to have some level of risk associated with their supply chain being linked to China. And that risk is going to come in the form probably of regulatory risk coming from Western governments. So all of a sudden, that basket of companies that you think that you can invest in gets an awful lot shorter because the companies that are geared to renewable energy are also, the, and there are just very few of them, they're not tied to China. So we actually recently did this exercise for the solar panel space, because obviously solar is a big part of this renewable story. We just simply need to have more solar panels. So when we looked at the 20 or so largest public companies that are involved in all stages of the, of the solar panel manufacturing, the whole supply chain, so from silicon to wafers to cells to modules, we could only find about six companies that didn't have strong ties to China whether it be to the region of China where we're getting a lot of, you know, underpaid workers. And there were only really uh, two companies that were that we could call pure plays in the solar industry that didn't have those ties to China. And as you can probably imagine, the stock prices of those two companies, no surprise, have behaved very, very differently than the rest of the pack. So these companies like, well, the two that we focused on were Mayer Burger and First Solar. And those two companies have had a really nice run up over the last year in terms of uh, stock price appreciation. Whereas their counterparts that have stronger ties to China, the stocks really have done very, very little. In fact, are, um, you know, are, are flat to down over the last year. So you can see that there's been this discrimination between renewables that are have delinked or, or don't have links to the supply chain in China and those that do. And again, this isn't really so much of a, an ESG perspective. It's just really this is this is the fact of the matter of how do you invest in renewables today? I would answer that question by saying for now, we're on the sidelines because those two companies that I mentioned that are free of China risk, the Meyerberger, for example, Swiss company, valuations are, PE is over 50. So from a valuation perspective, very, very hard to get in, into these stocks right now. What I would say is that investors can do their homework and look for those companies that currently have ties to the Chinese supply chain and what they're doing to delink themselves from it. And those might be some possible options. What is the best way to invest in the water industry from an ESG perspective, both in the short term and the longer term? 
Water is a really interesting one. Water has received an awful lot more attention in the financial press these days. And I would actually just tie it back to, uh, in many ways, just the consequences of climate change. So as you well know, there are a lot of the U.S. West Coast has been in drought for several years. There's problems with water shortages in different places in Europe and, and in Asia as well. And so the more that these problems are in the media, the more investors are starting to actually finally start to think about the risks in their portfolio. So on water, I think we can, two things have to, we have to look at it both through a risk and also as an opportunity. So in the short term, I think the very first thing that all investors need to do is they need to look at their portfolio and try to have a better handle over what are the companies that could face either no water as a business risk or those that potentially are going to have to start paying, putting in some sort of higher price for the water that they're using. So the industries that are most at risk of water shortage are uh, consumer staples. So anything related to food and textiles, huge water consumption in order to get our food to our tables, as well as the mining industry and oil and natural gas. So those are the areas to start with. But honestly, I would say from a risk perspective, it's those consumer staples and, uh, and consumer discretionary. So textiles and food and, and beverages that really need to be addressed from just what are these companies doing to address the fact that they may have operations in a part of the world where water, uh, there's going to be an increased competition for those uh, cheap water sources. So that's on the risk side. From an opportunity perspective, what I would say is that as water shortages become uh, a bigger and bigger issues into the future, there are going to be companies that have the right, have solutions to alleviate that problem. And investors need to be positioned for that. So finding the companies that have solutions to either help us use less water right off the bat. So finding processes that are, are less water intense and or companies that can enable us to recycle water in a better way. So for example, there's a Japanese company uh, called Kurita Water, and they essentially do water treatment. They also install closed loop water systems for cooling. And so the idea here is that the company basically publishes data that shows that as the company grows, as their revenue grows, the number of liters of water that is consumed by their customers shrinks. So you can see how a business like this is incredibly impactful in terms of helping us quite simply to conserve the water that we do have. Another company that we've looked into quite a bit, a um, company like Badger Meter. So Badger Meter is a U.S. company. It's known for digital water solutions. They help primarily company and the public sector that has poor infrastructure find leaks and repair those leaks. So it's probably well known that when you do have a wasteful water system, it's very, very hard to access that infrastructure. It's usually underground in order to fix it. So Badger Meter has developed technology essentially to find the leaks underground without having to rip up all of the infrastructure that's above ground. When you look across the totality of ESG investing, how do you see the sector performing over the next 12 months, both in relative and absolute terms? The way that you phrase the question, I think we have to be very, very careful. ESG as a sector, I'm not really sure what the future of that is. Of course, you everybody knows there's all these ETFs that are out there, right? These ESG, uh, ESG aware or ESG funds. What we have found in our research is that there is an awful lot of sectoral biases in these types of you know ESG ETFs, let's call them, that essentially, what do they do? For the most part, what most of these indices, what they're doing is they're taking out fossil fuel heavy companies. And as a result, they're overweighting the tech sector. 
And the reason why they're doing that is because in terms of ESG, the easiest thing to measure is a carbon footprint. And so it's very easy, or I shouldn't say it's easy, but the most plausible method to come up with an ESG fund is basically to justify it by reducing your carbon footprint. And so what we've seen over the last few years is that ESG funds tend to do really well when oil prices are going down or when the energy sector is underperforming, because of course there's this sectoral bias. And they do really well when the tech sector is doing well, because there's a natural sort of overweight to the tech sector. So that's one way of ESG investing. And so really what that amounts to is you need to have a call on what you think about what, you know, the future of the tech sector versus energy, because those are really the two, the major sort of overweights and underweights. So maybe I'll save my sort of more macro forecast on what I think is going to happen to the tech sector. But if that's the way you're looking at ESG, that's how you have to think about relative and absolute terms of an ESG fund that's built on that type of principle. Obviously, given the introduction that you gave about SMS in the beginning of this podcast, we are thinking about ESG more through these sustainability themes. So, for example, that entire dialogue that we just had about the renewable energy sector or water, basically, we're starting from a place of saying, okay, is this theme investable? Is the macro context in place for this particular theme to do well? And what are the companies that will benefit? And in that way, we come up with a very different conclusion about, you know, which sectors will perform well. For example, energy efficiency. There is a tremendous amount of fiscal push to conserve energy. And so we see that in the politics in Europe. We see that in the U.S., the massive subsidies for things like heat pumps, for example. This is the type of theme that we can get behind and say, okay, fossil fuel energy may or may not be in a bull market. But what we do know is that there's going to be dollars flowing into those companies that have energy efficiency solutions. And so one of the main themes that we have for this year, for example, is energy efficiency and also sustainable building, because we know that the Inflation Reduction Act is having a massive impact on the reconstruction of manufacturing facilities in the U.S. And so these companies, these construction companies that can show that they are building a sustainable way are probably going to outperform those that aren't. So I don't know if that exactly answers your question, but I think we really need to make this distinction between an ESG sort of indexed fund that is essentially tracking, you know, the major indices like the S&P 500 with slight deviations or really, truly building portfolios that take on active management risk. Lenka, thank you for this most interesting insight into the advisory service that is provided by Sustainable Market Strategies. With more time, it would be interesting to discuss in greater detail your views on those companies that are most attractive from an ESG perspective at the current time. The Independent Research Forum is offering a short trial to the Sustainable Market Strategies Service and can provide details of how to subscribe to the full SMS service. More information is available on request from the Independent Research Forum. Many thanks for listening to this IRF podcast with Lenka Martinek of Sustainable Market Strategies.